Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello there and welcome to the program. It's the 11th day of the first month of the year of our Lord, 2018. How y'all doing? Hey, God. So, I've been engaging in a lot of sighing, which has been noted by people who are in proximity to me. I don't know if that bodes well for a for a good show or not. I suspect not. Uh, at any rate, uh, yesterday, I... Not? Okay, I'm sorry. Yesterday, I, you know, went into this. Um, I didn't intended to get that hot, but uh, a rant about an editorial in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Um, as I thought about it later, I thought, you know what, I, 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 I didn't say enough. <laughs> it is so wrong-headed. It is so unbelievably a blast from the uh, past of ridiculous propaganda and misinformation about the drug uh, known as marijuana. Um, this was an editorial, for those of you who didn't hear yesterday's show, that actually uh, said that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had in fact done the right thing uh, by saying that he was uh, going to enforce federal marijuana laws uh, and the editorial in the PG called the reaction to uh, Sessions uh, removing the policy that had been in place under President Barack Obama uh, the editorial in the PG called it an unwarranted firestorm and then went on to say the most ludicrous things that I am uh, really blown away. I'm hoping that we'll be joined um, in a few moments by uh, the communications director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, uh, because this is an issue uh, that the ACLU cares uh, mightily about. And um, I'm, I'm sure that if the ACLU happened to see uh, this editorial, uh, they would have reacted not unlike I did, although perhaps with a little more uh, eloquence and uh, fact-based uh, critique. I had uh, mentioned, oh, is, is Andy here? Okay, I'm gonna let's uh, introduce Andy Hoover, who is the director of communications of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Hi, Andy. Hey, Lynn. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I was in a having a snit fit yesterday when I first saw that. Have you seen the editorial, by the way? I have. I have. I have it right here in front of me. All right. It, it's not the kind of thing you you want if you're trying to uh, digest your breakfast. Because it really, and I mean, the very fact that this came out of what is considered Pittsburgh's liberal, <laughs> liberal newspaper, um, how wrong-headed, I mean, I, I went nuts yesterday, how wrong-headed is this um, editorial supporting uh, the Attorney General's uh, decision to, in fact, enforce federal marijuana laws? Well, the short answer is very, uh, very wrong-headed. Uh, you know, it's hard to really know where to begin, but I think that probably what's most troubling here is the third paragraph of this editorial, which really goes into reefer madness propaganda. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's right out of, seriously, uh, right out of the 1930s misinformation campaign that resulted in the federal law that criminalized marijuana, right? Right, exactly. And that, and you know, the 80 years of prohibition have led to um, significant negative consequences for people for using a plant that is safer than alcohol, um, which is completely legal. 
you know, and I, what I find particularly troubling, and, and it's contradicted by the facts, is that this first sentence of that third paragraph talks about the, quote, dissonance uh, between the nation's uh, use of recreational pot and the headlong rush toward legalizing it, uh, as, as the Post-Gazette said, the headlong rush toward recreational pot, and the raging opioid epidemic. Well, when you look at data from states that have authorized medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, what you're seeing is a drop in Colorado in particular, um, you see a drop in opioid use and overdoses. And so, you know, people use the term gateway to describe marijuana. It's It's the right term, but for the wrong reason. Marijuana is a gateway out of opioid use. It's non-toxic, and it's safe, and it's an alternative to opioids. So the more marijuana is available, um, the more people can access that instead of these dangerous opioids. Andy, one thing I didn't get into yesterday when I was uh, going nuts about this uh, wrong-headed editorial uh, was the racial aspect of uh, the enforcement of marijuana laws. Yes. Well, go yes, for it. Yes, the data, yeah, the data on arrests consistently show racial disparities um, in marijuana enforcement. Uh, even though the survey data shows that marijuana usage is basically the same across people of all races, um, it is disproportionately a war against people of color. Um, the racial disparity statewide in Pennsylvania uh, in 2016 was 3.6, that African Americans were 3.6 times more likely to be arrested for possession uh, than white Pennsylvanians were, even though, again, the, 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 the survey data shows usage is basically the same. In Allegheny County in 2016, that disparity was 6.9 times more likely. Wow. Um, and so this is the war on drugs and its impact on uh, people of color is well established, um, and that's part of the urgency here to end um, this war on marijuana uh, and to move toward a system that uh, authorizes it for recreational use, not just medicinal use, but recreational as well. You know, this is an underground market that that wants to come out into the sunlight. Exactly, and and not to mention the extraordinary tax uh, benefits, I mean revenue benefits by taxing it that states would have um, in this time when they don't seem to want to, you know, uh, tax much of anything anymore. Um, the racial aspect, I came upon a, uh, I mean, the demonization, the misinformation about marijuana is really, you can t- be traced back in large part to one Pennsylvanian a guy named, was it Harry Anslinger? Uh-huh. Harry Anslinger, who uh, married one of the Mellon uh, heiresses. And, uh, and also, we found out yesterday, supplied heroin, morphine, to Senator Joe McCarthy for years. Uh-huh. Did you ever hear that? It's, I did not hear it, that. It is mind-blowing, yeah. but that's a fact. But somebody wow. somebody sent me, somebody sent me some of uh, Anslinger's uh, comments in uh, lobbying for the 1937 legislation that criminalized marijuana. And lest you think there isn't a racial component uh, to these laws, just sit back and listen to Anslinger. Quote, Marijuana smokers in the United States, mostly Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers, their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just warming up here, Andy. Anslinger, the primary reason to outlaw marijuana is its effect on the degenerate races. Marijuana is an addictive drug which produces in its users insanity, criminality, and death. 
I'm continuing. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Marijuana leads to pacifism and communism. You smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. Marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. It's this kind of absolute bullshit which mm-hmm. Americans were terrorized by, American parents, uh, so that, I mean, we've all seen the result of it, the hysteria around marijuana, the classification of it as a Schedule One drug, like heroin. This is mm-hmm. insanity. So, in terms of the racial aspect, though, Uh, Our prisons are filled with um, young black men whose, speaking of entryways, uh, it seems to me many of them first develop a criminal record by being arrested for marijuana possession. Is that true? Right, and there are, yeah, and there are multiple... Uh, Each each piece of this feeds on the others. Um, You know, so let me start with like mandatory minimum sentencing where you have um, uh, mandatories like the school zone mandatory where if you're within um, 1,000 feet of the property of a school, be it secondary or a university, um, you can get a stiffer mandatory minimum sentence for a drug offense um, than you would if you were outside that zone. Well, of course, in urban areas, um, you have more densely populated um, uh, geography, and so it has a disproportionate impact on people who live in cities, and of course you have more diverse populations in cities, and as a result you end up with more people of color being affected by a mandatory minimum like that. Um, the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing a number of years ago actually recommended abolishing the school zone mandatory minimum, which unfortunately the legislature has not done, but the courts have. Um, right now, Pennsylvania's mandatories are unenforceable because of a court ruling. Um, on the issue of violence, you know, violent crime, when you look at the data on what drugs are involved in, uh, in violent crimes, marijuana is always at the bottom of the list. Top of the list is alcohol. Um, and so it's that what you read there Lynn is just uh, you know you and I both know it it's and your listeners surely are attuned enough to know that's just pure propaganda that had no basis basis in any kind of science or fact and i suspect that um whoever wrote this editorial in the post gazette is still uh has still got a muddled head because of this kind of propaganda it it has some lasting power in uh, in older populations, I would suggest. Uh, That's the challenge. Yeah, go ahead. No, and you know what also just occurred to me when you were talking about it? So if you put a lot of black guys in jail, they also lose their voting rights in a lot of uh, states. Or and, and, and this is a wonderful kind of voter suppression to uh, criminalize uh uh, conduct that you will be able to sweep up a lot of uh, black men with. Yeah, there, and when that's another piece of this that you know, when I said that there are multiple pieces that all feed each other, uh, that's another part is the collateral consequences of being arrested um, and potentially convicted. Um, vote, here in Pennsylvania, we actually have a relatively strong. Um, uh, set of voting rights for people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, the people who cannot vote are those who are currently in jail or in prison for a felony conviction or someone who violated the election code within the last four years. Um, the moment someone walks out of prison, they have voting rights. And they don't have to do anything to get them restored um, once they're out. How uh, they have the right to vote. Andy, I, I know you spent a lot. I know you spent a lot of time in uh, in Harrisburg. How the hell did a progressive piece of legislation like that ever pass in Harrisburg? Oh, it wasn't through the legislature. It was through the courts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, uh, thank you. Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, in the in the mid '90s, the legislature, with uh, Governor Tom Ridge's approval, actually passed a bill that. 
um, prohibited people from voting for five years after release. Um, that was challenged in the state courts, and in the early 2000s, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, overturned that as unconstitutional under the state constitution. Was the ACLU, um, was so the ACLU involved in, in that case? You know, I don't know. I know the Pennsylvania Prison Society was uh, was the plaintiff. Okay. Uh, we probably filed a brief. You know, that was uh, <laughs> those are issues that we uh, have always worked on. Um, but yeah, that's that's the state of voting rights for people who uh, have been convicted of crimes. But there are other collateral consequences. You know, access to education and 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 financial aid, access to housing. Um, that uh, a criminal conviction. Uh, can impact people's daily lives in multiple ways. And this war on marijuana uh, has that negative impact. Um, we want to see, uh, we are seeing a movement toward um, the idea of legalizing for recreational use. And, you know, you're seeing state after state right. slowly but surely uh, approve it. Um, I'm wondering if this Pennsylvania is a definite laggard. Um, in this realm, and has just is just starting to implement uh, um, medical marijuana. Does uh, Sessions uh, move here to enforce federal uh, marijuana laws uh, put in jeopardy uh, Pennsylvanians' uh, ability to get medical marijuana? Well, Governor Wolf has said no, um, that he will continue to defend people's access to medical marijuana. I think the, the greatest risk of uh, Attorney General Sessions withdrawing this memo is just that it creates a certain level of uncertainty. Um, you know, U.S. individual U.S. attorneys will make decisions about what to enforce. Uh, here in, I'm, I'm in Harrisburg, I'm in Central PA, and the, the new U.S. attorney for the Middle District um, has said that he thinks that the state law is fine and he doesn't see any real change uh, in enforcement in the Middle District. Uh, but that's going to be an office-by-office office decision. Uh, I know that there's some concern that the states that have authorized for recreational use will be targeted, um, but the ability to, of DOJ to completely um, dismantle those systems uh, really seems far-fetched, that they really don't have those kinds of resources to do that. But could they make examples of someone? Maybe. That's the, that, that's the biggest risk here is that there are a lot of unknowns and it creates uncertainty in, a, in an industry that is growing. This is an industry that has created jobs. Um, as you said a few minutes ago, it has led to a great deal of tax revenue. Colorado has seen uh, maintenance backlogs of 20 years dissipate because they've taken marijuana revenue and used it for infrastructure. Um, and so there are benefits that states are reaping as a result of authorizing marijuana for recreational use. Um, and DOJ now has just created a, a muddled situation where I think a lot of folks will just be uncertain of what will happen next. Andy, can I, can I uh, pick your brain about another uh, issue that's uh, in the news, and that has to do with uh, gerrymandering, congressional districting? Uh, redistricting. I'll do my best. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, the reason being is that in uh, Philadelphia, the federal judges, I, I believe, yesterday uh, upheld uh, Pennsylvania's uh, gerrymandered uh, districts. I'm looking at a map of the districts, and I got to tell you, if District 12, which is in these parts, and District 6 are not gerrymandered, then, uh, you know, I'm a, a, uh, a stand-in for Pamela Anderson. I mean, this is <laughs> ludicrous, ludicrous. Okay, so there's yeah. another federal, I mean, that's a federal case. There's a state case that is uh, making its way, is, and I think the ACLU is in, involved with, do you have any idea where that stands and uh, whether we might uh, be able to see a ruling that will uh, mandate that the congressional districts be with redrawn before the 2018 elections? 
that is possible. So there are multiple cases floating out there, including one in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, and folks should keep in mind that the states have the ability to um, create stronger constitutional law than what we get from federal constitutional law. The federal constitution is basically considered the floor. The states can't um, diminish rights any more than um, what is set by the federal constitution. But the states can make rights more robust. Hmm. So I'll give you an example outside of another context. Um, the, the federal constitutional case law might determine that um, police, uh, law enforcement does not need a warrant to get, to do a search of a vehicle, but the state constitution could say, well, our state constitution has privacy rights that do require a warrant to search a vehicle. Um, so they're not in conflict, it's just that the state is making that right more robust. So as you mentioned, Lynn, there's a case in front of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court um, to, that challenges Pennsylvania's system of redistricting. Um, the plaintiff in that case is the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. They're being represented by the Public Interest Law Center, which is based in Philadelphia. And um, they have argument this month in front of the state Supreme Court. In fact, the state Supreme Court has basically expedited this case. Um, there was argument in front of the lower court, the Commonwealth Court, in December. And the Commonwealth Court judge made a recommendation uh, at the end of December, and now there will be argument in front of the state Supreme Court this month. But that recommendation, uh, the, that recommendation I, was what? Was was what? Was his recommendation? So the Commonwealth Court unfortunately recommended that this is not right. unconstitutional. Right. Um, the the court acknowledged that the, the Pennsylvania system of redistricting does give partisan advantage, but that it's not unconstitutional under the state constitution. Um, and now the state Supreme Court will have to wrestle with that question. The ACLU uh, is not counsel in that case, but we did file a brief uh, in support of okay. the plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. um, our argument is that the, the redistricting process that is used um, to draw our districts um, discriminates against people based on association, that being their association with a political party. Um, that because the, you know, a voter associates with the party that's not in the majority, um, they get drawn into districts a particular way, and that that is unconstitutional under Pennsylvania's um, free speech clause of our state constitution. Okay. And any sense of when we might expect uh, the Supreme Court, uh, Pennsylvania Court, to hear the case and then how long it takes from then to have a decision? Um, so they are hearing argument in front of the state Supreme Court this month. Um, I don't have the exact date in front of me, but I know it is um, in January. And the state Supreme Court has suggested they could make a decision that would force redrawing of districts for the 2018 election if they rule in favor of plaintiffs, um, which was the purpose of expediting the case. So um, it's going to be <laughs> a lot of activity really fast. Yeah. Um, there, there was a case actually in North Carolina where a federal court did find that North Carolina's um, drawing of districts was unconstitutional. So there are conflicting decisions out there in the federal courts. Like I said, the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, has a case in front of it as well. That's from but Wisconsin, I believe. Yeah, Wisconsin case, uh -huh. I believe. Yeah. Yep, exactly. But here in Pennsylvania, our state Supreme Court will be making its own decision based on the state constitution. And just to be clear, uh, the way it works is if our state Supreme Court makes a decision about our redistricting, that then is the that's it. It can't be. It can't make its way then to the federal Supreme Court. Correct. It's yeah, a parallel okay. right. and separate system. Right. So that would be the final, the final uh, say. All righty. Well, good God. Hey, you guys are sort of busy these days, huh? The ACLU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Whew. Man. I well, I wish you I got to tell you I wish you all the best and um and I sure hope my audience uh, I know well would concur and I hope follows that up by making sure they're members of the ACLU and uh, give you the monetary support that uh that we need you to have. I mean, I I, I I'm just saying, how many you know the ACLU so often is there when when our civil liberties are really in jeopardy as they seem to be every other minute uh in the last year and uh you know the number of attorneys that you have available it just are dwarfed by the number of attorneys that the government has available so yes yeah yeah nationwide we have um about uh, 300 attorneys, I think, uh, in the national office, and a, f- a few hundred more in the state offices. The Department of Justice has 11,000, and that's just the DOJ. That doesn't mean that doesn't include fighting with you know other agencies, state state agencies. <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate your support. Uh, we it, it, the growth has been amazing. Um, we saw a boost after the 2016 election, mm-hmm. but where the real boost came in was after the Muslim ban in January. Um, that's, I think, when people realized, wow, it's real. Um, the attacks on civil liberties are real. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we went from 15,000 households that were members to 50,000 households. Wow. Um, yeah, nationally, we went from about half a million to two million. So, you know, people realize, hey, we need the ACLU. <laughs> well, that's so good, and it's certainly the more members, the more muscle you have. I want to see the ACLU have more members than the National Rifle Association so that we can equal <laughs> them in their muscle, okay? Yeah, I, they, have, uh, they, they, wor- they worry about one amendment. We worry about a whole bunch of other yeah, amendments. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Gosh, you guys are busy. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Uh, Andy, and thank you for taking time out from all that work to uh, join us this morning. Thanks a million. Yeah, thanks, Lynn. Thanks for the support. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Andy Hoover, the Director of Communications for the uh, Pennsylvania American Civil Liberties Union. So there you go, guys. All right. Where are we now? Um, oh, you know, I, this is a little tidbit. I don't know if you might have seen it. I, you know how I'm always saying that Republicans get into office and they create messes. I mean, unbelievable, disastrous messes, usually financial. So that a state that might have had a surplus, you'll recall that uh, Bill Clinton handed George W. Bush I mean, you'll recall that Bill Clinton was given a huge deficit. He created in his eight years a surplus, which he then handed off to George W. Bush, a Republican, who not only decimated it, but added a huge, huge, huge debt and deficit, which, along with a recession almost approaching depression, he hands off to the Democrat, to clean up Barack Obama. Barack Obama does it, and eight years later, hands off to the Republicans, yet again, a growing economy. This is what happens all the time. And I I don't understand why voters don't see it. How often do you have to see a pattern repeat itself before you sort of say, Duh. Uh, we elect these Republicans, and then things really turn to shit. And then we bring in a Democrat, and things get better. And then Republicans tell us, sell us a pack of lies again, so we elect them, and they create again. Another huge mess. I just, I say this because I came on this little tidbit. Governor Jerry Brown of the state of California 
lived this pattern himself. <coughs> he came into office succeeding a Republican administration. That would be the administration of Arnold Schwarzenegger who wasn't even a particularly right-wing Republican. He was a moderate Republican. And yet, California, under Arnold Schwarzenegger, had a deficit of $27 billion. That's a lot of money. Their public schools were in big trouble. I remember, I remember that. There was terrible, terrible stories about how schools had no money. They, California had no money. And a $27 billion deficit. And so, whenever that happens, what do the people do? They elect a Democrat. And Jerry Brown came in and he did the hard stuff. He raised taxes. He cut spending. <laughs> and he's leaving office in, I think, a year. I just want to say that during his tenure, Jerry Brown took that $27 billion deficit and will hand off to his successor, if he were to do it today, a $6 billion plus surplus this is what democrats do when they have the reins of government and part of it is well a whole bunch of it is they believe a person is a democrat because they believe in the power of government they believe that it can be, when tended fastidiously, something for the common good. Republicans do not think that at all. They look at government as an evil. They look at government as something that stifles the ability of the rich to get richer to pollute, to do whatever they damn well please because they believe in unfettered, unfettered capitalism. And so when they come into office, whoo, all hell breaks loose. And nobody is ever minding the store. People are just making out like bandits. And deficits grow. And people suffer. And suffering people elect Democrats again to come in and clean up the mess. I don't know about you, but I am so sick of this merry-go-round. And I am so beyond angry at the people of this country for being so shallow, so disinterested. You know, I know a lot of people say democracy works if everybody does, in fact, vote in a selfish way. Vote for their own interests. It'll work, they say. I've never been sure about that. But I have to tell you, I think that maybe there is something to it. And what we have seen... Uh, in recent modern history is, is that a whole bunch of people don't understand what their interests are when they vote. They're easily played and bamboozled and propagandized and misinformed. They're distracted by certain social issues. And they vote for people who have no intention of helping them one whit. So I guess if some folks got back to really understanding how government works, what their interests are, 
and voting that way instead of where their emotional selves take them. We'd be in better shape, but unfortunately people vote emotionally. They do not vote cerebrally. That's, that's my sense. And so you end up with Donald J. Trump as President of the United States. There's a book coming out that's called How Democracies Die. It's getting good reviews. I mean, rather than bother reading the book, you could just sit and watch television because uh, you're seeing it, you know? It's sort of like, you don't even need the audio book. There's a video book. It's called The News. Just look at it. There, you're seeing it. There's democracy dying a little bit every day. According to this book, there are four, there are four red flags that citizens of a democracy need to look at when a new person, like a Donald Trump, comes into power. And understand, this book was well in the working before Donald Trump became president because these guys are academics, and they were looking at the extraordinary loss of democracy in other countries that we've seen recently, Venezuela for one, the Philippines for another. Democracies that functioned relatively well that turned into total authoritarian states seemingly overnight and usually with the election of one man. And the four red flags, I'm going to give them to you now. I'm going to say the leader as opposed to the president or the prime minister or whatever, whoever's in charge. The leader shows only a weak commitment to democratic rules. Uh, okay, I'm just asking. Tick that baby off, and I think Donald Trump definitely uh, that. We'll check that off. Number two, he denies the legitimacy of opponents. Check it off. He's two out of four. Number three, he shows, oh, he tolerates violence. Tick it off. And number four, red flag of when a democracy is in trouble, he or she shows a willingness to curb civil liberties or the media. These authors, both professors at Harvard, by the way, says that you need just one of these criteria to be concerned. One. We got four. These two authors also say that with the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party presidential candidate ever met even one of the criteria. With the exception of Nixon, nobody even met one. And now we got a guy in office, you can disagree with that or not, okay? We got a guy who checks off all four. And... Democracies don't die because they're attacked <laughs> from outside. They don't die because of uh, outside forces. They invariably die because of internal reasons. Um, and they die when people acquire office through legal means. In other words, Donald Trump was elected president. So he's, he really is the president. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was elected president. Adolf Hitler was elected chancellor. Mussolini was elected. Duterte elected. 
the current uh, president of Poland elected. These are all countries. Peru, I can think of the ads of Peru. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, and you can see how it's one man is elected by the people democratically. And the democracy is essentially gone within four years. Gone. If you'll recall, Venezuela was a very prosperous democracy. You wouldn't want to be there now. It went from first world to third world like that. My clicker ain't working. So, these authors say that democracies start uh, withering, believe it or not, at the ballot box. (laughs) That's where it happens. And they point out that in Germany or in Italy, uh, when Mussolini and when Hitler took power, no more than 2 to 3% of the people actively were members of those fascist parties. There wasn't clear majority support for the authoritarianism that resulted. But after a while, there ain't no stopping it. The only thing that saves us, according to these guys, are our institutions. And the only thing also is our refusal to allow the complete unraveling of democratic norms. Unfortunately, that ain't happening. They specifically talk about norms, democracies that are functioning do not treat the other political side as enemies. They treat them as rivals. We are long past that, right? You have a president that's actively trying to subvert most of our institutions. And what do we do? Here's what these guys say. I'm just going to read it and then I'm going to take a call. They say it is critical if you want to save a democracy to build coalitions. And that specifically means working with people you don't necessarily agree with. A coalition, not of, the, not of your litmus-tested political buddies, but a coalition that makes painful compromises to bring people together. It has to be broad-based. It has to bring business leaders, religious leaders, Republicans and Democrats and independents together or there's no saving it. So these guys seem to be telling the likes of us in the resistance that if you really want to save the democracy, you got to do more than what it is you're doing. If these, I'm going to give you one last quote. If these kinds of actions, the resistance, are limited to blue state progressives, the risk of failure and further polarization is very high. Just saying. Take it to heart. Caller. Hello. Hello, Lynn. Yeah. Real quick, I read this article a while back, similar to the one you're talking about, all those things, but one of the things they did say was the glorification of the military yes. and the militarization of the police is the fall of any country. And if you see Korea, Russia with those parades, the big missiles. When you have a country that 
glorifies the military like we do, mm. it turns into the loss of democracy. Do you, re- they said. do you remember that Trump on his inauguration requested that uh, some of our big missiles and tanks be part of the parade? Yeah. Something that had never, ever, ever been done. And that was scary. it was the military that shot him down. Whether whether or Thank not God. the reason they gave was correct, I don't know. But they said, "Look at, the, I mean, they'll chew up Pennsylvania Avenue. The, the they're so heavy and this and that. So they just made it seem like you know you'd you'd have to repave Pennsylvania Avenue. We really can't do that. When in fact, it's just so outside the norm of what America has done." when when welcoming a new president we don't put on a military display that's what the russians do that's what the north koreans do that's what the chinese do we do not yet right, right. Uh, okay thank, thank you. you so much appreciate it okay bye bye we do have flyovers however after the national anthem at uh, football games And if somebody ever wants to explain that to me, feel free. Roger writes, A young 25-year-old woman in my office is being mentored by my boss. They share and review leadership books almost every week. Yesterday, I saw on her desk The Conservative Handbook by Phil Valentine with a foreword by Sean Hannity. I almost puked. Roger, I can't, obviously you've told us before of your workplace. I mean, this seems like so vile. I can't, I'd be looking for a job if I were you. As we were leaving, I asked if she purchased it or if it was a present. It was a present. She got it from our boss. She's been drinking the Kool-Aid the past few years, works a second job as a bartender in a bar that still has smoking. Ah, the good old days. The same bar where they threw out a Hillary supporter before the election. Yeah. All big Trump supporters. She says most of her drinking clientele doesn't have a high school diploma. Oh. I told her that between our boss, that book and her second job, she doesn't stand a chance. I pissed her off, but I really don't give a shit anymore. Sharpening my guillotine. Roger. Roger, I mean, give it up. I mean, they must think... Can you imagine what they say about you? If you're the only one. Oh, Oh, God, I feel for you. You know, having to go into work at a place where... You're like working with aliens. So there's been a lot made lately about the... Hollywood and women and uh, women don't get the money and women don't get the positions. I just saw some report came out the other day about the number of women who direct movies, who edit movies. Uh, It's not just the women uh, not getting the starring roles or, um, you know, there's whole movies where you don't even see a woman. And if you do, she's there for sexual effect um but behind the scenes it's every bit as awful uh hollywood and the dream machine is created by men and so our it's it's overwhelmingly male and this explains so much and the wall street journal today has a piece which they titled no country for young men a play obviously on the movie the the title no country for old men and they're speaking specifically about action movies because action movies are the most uh sex gender segregated even though there's been a little push lately with wonder woman uh to start to uh remedy that perhaps But what they pointed out, and this blows me away, is that all these guys in these action movies, they never age out. They never age out. So you're looking at, you're looking at uh, Liam Neeson, 
who's about to, I guess there's a new movie. I think it just hit Pittsburgh theaters. I think it hits them tomorrow called uh, The Commuter. And all of these action heroes now, these old guys, they're old. I mean, they're old. A woman is old in Hollywood when she's 35. Harrison Ford, ladies and gentlemen, Exhibit A. I just saw him in The Last Jedi. Is that what it is? The last Star Wars movie. Isn't that what it's called? Why are you saying? Oh, no, he's dead. He's dead. He was dead in the one before that. You're right. Who did I see who looked so friggin' old? Oh, probably Mark Hamill. Anyway, right. Harrison Ford. Yeah, he's finally, he got killed out of that one. But he has not been killed out of Indiana Jones. Do you believe this? They are making another Indiana Jones movie. And Harrison Ford will be 78 years old. (laughs) When it comes out, he'll be 78 years old. Because the guys, they just are... We're supposed to think that he at 78 is still... Well, everything he was 50 years ago. How long has it been since you've seen Sigourney Weaver uh, in an action film? Clint Eastwood was 78. No, he was. Yeah, he was 78 uh, when he did Gran Torino. 78! Sure, he talks to chairs. But that's okay, because he's a guy. Chuck Norris was 72 when he did The Expendables 2. Morgan Freeman, 73 when he did Red. Sylvester Stallone, a very young 64 with The Expendables. You know... And Liam Neeson, what what will he be? He he was seventy, he was seventy something, in the commuter, no sixty five. I'm sick of it, frankly. And I'm hardly alone. I don't know. I don't see any fixing it. I was reading the paper today. I think maybe I've started by saying I'm sighing a lot today. There were so many pieces in the newspaper that showed how women are just fucked. All over the world, it doesn't matter. There was a story about women in Tibet. I've read this before. When a woman is menstruating, she is thrown out of her house. She cannot sleep in the house. She cannot eat in the house. By her very being, she will defile the house. And so, some of them bed down with in the stable, if they've got a stable. Some find a little hut. There's often no place to go. And her crime is she has her period. And women die. They die from exposure. They die because they're raped and killed. They die because they're alone. There was a recent death of a woman who was so cold she lit a little fire in this hut she was in and ended up uh, being asphyxiated. And in my religion... The Orthodox Jews consider a menstruating woman unclean. Uh, You know, women are dealing with baggage that goes back thousands and thousands of years that our very bodies are toxic. 
And that has gone into the culture, into our paternalistic religions, into every aspect of our being. And if you think, hashtag me too, and wearing buttons and black is going to even make a dent, you're not thinking clearly. That's the way I see it. I'm trying to remember the other story that was so horrific. There was one other horrific story about that, you know, you see all the time these stories about women's lives. I don't know. Henry writes, Lynn, I often ask myself the question, where did we go wrong? It would be far too easy to blame Fox News, but Fox was the beginning of a significant movement in the country. Yeah, Fox is, if you want to start pointing fingers, Roger Ailes, as I've said, when the history of the downfall of the United States of America is written, Roger, you know, you want to draw up the, the portraits of uh, the people who helped shepherd this country toward the end of its democracy. And Roger Ailes is huge. Newt Gingrich is huge. It would be far too easy to blame Fox News, but Fox was the beginning of a significant movement in this country, writes Henry, propped up by people like Limbaugh, people who felt isolated and disenfranchised, found a home with this new form of conservative media. It's, it was conservative entertainment media. Journalism, it was an afterthought. Ailes was a genius in that he took an entertainment show and said it was news. Because Fox News is an entertain, purely an entertainment vehicle. Using news as its you know, as it's fodder. But it's an entertainment show. I feel strongly that the end of democracy began with the birth of Fox and associated conservative talking heads. They certainly hurried it along, and if you're, you know, yeah, looking for rounding up the usual suspects, uh, that would be it. I would also argue the demise of public education as we knew it, and that also is because of Republicans. Um, the uh, the deterioration of institutions that help democratize the country, public education being number one, uh, and demonizing public education so that people self-segregated, the rich refused to go to public schools, they ran out of uh, the cities, lest their children have to go to schools with poor people and black people. They set up in rich suburbs where their public schools were rich and a lot like private schools, while the people in the public school, all of that. You think that doesn't result in the failure of democracy? It's not just the political realm where you see the dissolution. The failure to teach civics. <laughs> the incredible ignorance of Americans about their government. The proliferation probably of technology might have something to do with it as well in that without social media, um, I don't know that Trump would be president. I don't know. There's a lot. Smarter heads than ours will parse it and the books will be written. So anyway, be vigilant. 
form coalitions, and don't forget to uh, live your life. Okay, uh, that's it. I think, uh, whoop, what was that? We're due back tomorrow. See you then. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.